Amen. All right, well, we're there in Leviticus chapter number 24, and uh, we're making our way through the book of Leviticus. We're almost done. There's 27 chapters in the book, so that leaves us, what, through, uh, 25, 26, 27, three chapters after this, and I think once we're done with Leviticus, I'm going to take a sabbatical, and uh, no, I'm just kidding. You guys don't even know what that is, so we won't worry about that. Leviticus 24, uh, there's a lot of interesting things in this chapter. This chapter kind of has two themes. At the beginning, you deal with one thing, and then you kind of shift gears and get into something else. We're just going to go through it and see what we can learn along the way. The first theme, as you begin the chapter, there's kind of this thought of, of continuation, uh, how to continue, uh, and it's really kind of a, a picture of continuing in the Christian life. Look, look down at verse number one. The Bible says this, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee, I want you to notice what it says, pure oil, olive beaten, for the light to cause the lambs to burn, I want you to notice this word, continually, to burn continually. Without the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation shall Aaron order it from the evening unto the morning before the Lord, notice this word, continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. Notice verse 4. And he, uh, I'm sorry, he shall order the lamps upon the pure candlestick before the Lord. Notice this word, continually. So there's this idea of the lamp. If you remember last on Sunday morning when we were going through the life of Eli, we saw that the lamps burnt out. Remember the lamps went out in the tabernacle? Well, this is the passage that tells us that those lamps were never to go out. They were supposed to be uh, lit Continually, They were supposed to be burning uh, continually. And there's a picture here that the Lord, uh, that, that I believe God is trying to show us and God is trying to give us. And I want you to notice that it is this idea of the lamps being lit and they were to continue. If you look at verse number two again, command the children of Israel that they bring unto thee pure oil, olive, beaten for the light. Now, keep your place there in Leviticus 24. Obviously, that's our text for tonight. Go with me to the book of Matthew, in the New Testament book of Matthew the first book in the New Testament, chapter number 5. And do me a favor, when you get to Matthew, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to Matthew. We're going to go back and forth from Matthew for a little bit. I want to show you a couple of things. The way that these lamps would work, it, it, it wouldn't necessarily be a candle like you and I uh, know a candle today in the sense that you would have the, the, the wax or the... Whatever the candles made, yeah, I, I can't remember the 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 health the healthy. What's the healthy candle? The soy soy candles or whatever. You'd have the the way that these candles would work is you 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 would have it uh, placed in oil, which is why he commands them to have the oil beaten for the light. And the candle would literally get its source from the oil. It burn up the oil and actually pr- would preserve the candle and it would preserve the it would allow it to burn, and it would just burn up the oil. The idea was that as you, as you just refilled these, these pots that the candles uh, sat in with the oil, you could burn them for a long, long time. In fact, you, they could go for a long time without ever burning out, and you just had to make sure that there was constant oil being poured in there. That's the idea that he's telling. He's saying, I need you to bring the oil in because these lamps are supposed to never go out. They're not supposed to burn out. See, if you take a candle and you light it, eventually it's going to burn out. Eventually it's going to run out. But if you keep it being fed with the oil, it won't burn out. 
it'll, it'll, it'll go for a long, long time. That's the idea. You say, well, what's the picture there? Well, in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 14, Jesus said this. He said, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Jesus taught that we are the light of the earth. You and I are pictured all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Bible, we're pictured as, as light. And in fact, he, he said, you are like a lamp. You are like a, a candle that is put on a candlestick. And we won't take the time to go there, but in the book of Revelation, the, we're told that local churches are represented by candlesticks. And the idea is that of a candle. You're there in Matthew 5. Go to the book of John. Keep your place in Matthew. We're going to come back to it. But go to John chapter 5, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. My whole life growing up, I heard, I heard this, and I don't know where this came from, other than the fact that maybe people just observed it, but we have found it to be true here at Verity Baptist Church. And when I was growing up, I was always told this, and I heard this from several different pastors, so I'm not sure, again, where it came from. But we were told that the average Christian, when someone gets saved and gets connected in church and begins to grow, we're not talking about a child, but an adult that either gets reached uh, and begins to uh, be a part of a church family, or uh, when, when a young person you know, on their own decides to begin to walk with God and is interested in things of God, we're told that they usually last about three years. About three years is the average. And if they can make it past three years, then the next kind of you know, mark is a seven-year mark. Usually you will lose people after three years, and if you don't lose them after three years, you will lose them after seven years. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because my wife and I have actually gone back and looked at individuals that were just, you know, very uh, involved in the things of God, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And it almost seems like clockwork. You know, it's like, man, at their three-year anniversary, just right about there, they just quit. They just found something different to do. And, and, and the ones that last more than three years, we usually see about seven years, you know, and we've seen that in the lives of individuals. And the reason for that is because the Christian life, though we are not saved by works, the Christian life is a lot of work. When you actually do the Christian life, it requires work. There was some work that went into you showing up for Wednesday night Bible study tonight. There is work that goes into Saturday morning soul winning. There is work that goes into daily Bible reading. There is work that goes into prayer time. There is work that goes into all of the things that we do or that we attempt to do in the Christian life. And the truth of the matter is that most Christians end up quitting on God, not necessarily because they're bad people, but they just get burnt out. It just gets too much for them. They just kind of get tired of it, and it kind of becomes this thing where it's like, well, do we really want to do that again? Do we really want to go through that, you know, season again? And are we, you know, soul winning again, and a soul winning marathon again, and read through the Bible again, and, and, and all of those things, they, they get burnt out, and you can kind of see it in the lives of people. You kind of see when they've lost that first love when they're kind of just going through the motions and you kind of know they're getting ready to go. And you say, well, what's the difference between a Christian? Because look, there are people that just go soul winning for years and years and years and years and years and don't ever quit. You know, I'm thankful for uh, my, the, the testimony of my family and my parents. I'm thankful for my dad, who I've literally seen go out soul winning week after week, you know, my entire life. 
you know, for, so it's not a three-year, seven-year thing. It's a decade thing, and, and, and you see that, you know, in the lives of many people. You say, what's the difference between those people who burn out, who eventually get tired, who eventually just, you know, it's just kind of like, man, I just, it, it was enough, I'm tired, I'm done, and those who just go and go and go and never quit. Are you there in John chapter 5? Look at verse number 33. Notice what the Bible says about John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? John 5.33, notice what the Bible says about him, what Jesus said. He said, Ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. But I received not testimony from man, but these things I say, that ye might be saved. Notice what he says about John. John 5.35, He was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. See, John the Baptist had a great ministry while he was on this earth. Jesus said that he was a burning and a shining light. And look, in my life and in your life, our goal ought to be to be a burning and a shining light, but to never burn out. Amen. To always burn and shine, but to not burn out. You say, well, what's, what is the secret to burning and not burning out? To let the light so shine before men, but without actually getting to the point where I'm just tired, where I'm just done. There's no more to burn for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, go, go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 10. Let me show you something, and this is not, you, you know this, but let's look at it together. Acts chapter 10, you're there in John, just one book over, Acts chapter 10. See, God had them put these lamps in the tabernacle. And they were supposed to be continually burning. They were supposed to never burn out. In fact, in 1 Samuel, when they burn out, it's a picture of the fact that the, the, the Spirit of the Lord has departed from the family of Eli and from the tabernacle and that the work of God is no longer being done. Acts chapter 10, look at verse number 38. Notice what the Bible says in Acts 10, 38. The Bible says this, Acts 10, 38. How God, I want you to notice this word, anointed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. It's interesting that throughout, and I'm just showing you one example, but there's other examples we could look at, that God will often equate the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit to oil. Because in the Bible, you would get anointed with oil. And here, he's talking about the Holy Ghost, but he's speaking of the Holy Ghost as if he's oil. He says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Go to 1 John chapter number 2. 1 John chapter number 2, if you go to the end of the Bible, book of Revelation, and head back, you got the book of Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John. So you got Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st John. 1st John chapter 2, look at verse 27. We won't go to 1st Samuel, but remember when David was anointed to be king of Israel? The Bible says that Samuel poured oil upon the head of David, and the Bible says that when the oil fell upon his head, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Why? Because in Scripture, you often find that the Holy Spirit is pictured by oil. 1 John 2.27 speaks to us of the ministry of the Holy Ghost in our lives. Notice what it says, 1 John 2.27, But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. That's talking about, and we just preached on the Holy Ghost not too long ago, so I won't develop a lot of this, but the abiding in you has to do with the sealing of the Spirit and the earnest of the Spirit. And ye need not that any man teach you, but the same anointing teacheth you of all 
things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Talking about the Holy Ghost, how he guides us in all truth, and how he helps us in all, in all truth. Go back to Leviticus 24. You say, well, what is, the, what is the secret to not burning out? Well, what was the secret to not burning out the lamps in the tabernacle? Leviticus 24, verse 2, command that the children of Israel, that they bring unto thee pure oil, olive beaten, for the light. Why? Why bring the oil? To cause the lambs to burn continually. And the thing about olive oil is that when you burn it, there's no smoke. There's no, it, it burns very cleanly. And here's what would happen. As, as, the, as a priest would walk into the tabernacle and they would begin to see one of these lamps and it kind of looks like it's starting to burn out. They see a little bit of smoke and it, it, it's, it's not really producing anymore and it, it's getting ready to burn out. They would look at it and they say, oh, it's out of oil. And as they would add oil, they would add that fuel and it would continue to burn. And I'm here to tell you, if you are feeling a little burnt out, if you're feeling a little tired, if you're thinking like, well, I'm just not excited about soul winning like I used to be, or I'm not excited about Bible reading like I used to be, or I'm not excited about the things of God, I just feel a little burnt out of it, it's probably because you're not walking in the Spirit. See, the oil is what's needed for you to continue to burn without burning out. And look, Christians who walk with God for three years and then cut out, or seven years, and then cut out, or they burn, but they eventually burn out, it's, it comes down to one thing, the fact that they did not have the Holy Spirit ministering in their lives. I'm not talking about salvation, but like we talked about a few weeks ago, if we're going to live the victorious Christian life, we're going to have to learn to be filled with the Spirit. Every day, you're going to have to go to God and say, fill me with your Spirit, because if I work but I don't do it while working in the Spirit and walking in the Spirit and with the Spirit of God upon me and with the power of God, I'm here to tell you, you'll eventually burn out. You're not going to make it. You're not going to last. And God gives us this illustration where He says, I want you to be a light, like the light in the candlestick, but I want you to not burn, uh, burn out. I want you to burn continually. You say, how do you do that? You need a filling of the Holy Ghost. That's why it talks about in the book of Psalms about David. He said, I will be anointed with fresh oil. And he talks about the fact that he had received an anointing. And David, several times in his life, had been anointed to be king. But he said, you know what? Every once in a while, you just kind of need a new anointing. And every once in a while, you just kind of need a little bit of a, of, of a fresh oil in your life. And you know, in my life and in your life, you, you and I need the same thing. We get tired and we get uh, upset and we get, you know, just going through things and it's just uh, the, the struggles of life. But look, if you're starting to feel burnt out, you probably need to make, take some time to get alone with God and ask for a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit to begin to walk in the fullness of the Spirit, to ask the Lord to help you to be filled with the Spirit. And you say, well, well, what is that? How do you get filled with the Spirit? Well, it's interesting because it's the next thing he deals with in Leviticus 24. Go, go back to Leviticus 24, look at verse 5. He gives this picture of the candles that, are, that will burn out if not properly filled with oil. And he talks about the fact that you need the filling of the oil, the anointing, to continually burn. But then he continues the idea of a continuing sacrifice but he gives us another illustration. Look at Leviticus 24 and verse 5. He says this, Thou shalt take fine, notice this word, flour, and bake 12 cakes. What are we talking about here? Bread. 
Therefore, two tenthios shall be in one cake, and thou shalt set them in two rows, six on a row upon the pure table before the Lord. And thou shalt put pure frankincense upon each row, that it may be on, notice the words, the bread, for a memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every Sabbath day he shall set it in order before the Lord, notice our word, continually. It's this idea of how do you continue in the Christian life? Being taken from the, uh, the children of Israel and by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be Aaron's and his sons. And they shall, notice what the Bible says, they shall eat it in the holy place. Now notice about this bread. They were supposed to bake this bread. They took the flour. They baked 12 cakes. It's referred to as bread. But they were supposed to eat it. Notice verse 9. They shall eat it in the holy place. Okay, the holy place is that tabernacle. What made it holy was the fact that the Ark of the Covenant was there. They were supposed to take this bread, but they weren't just supposed to go home and do it. They were supposed to eat it in the holy place in the presence of the Lord, for it is most holy unto him of the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statue. You say, well, what's the picture here? What is it that God's trying to teach us? You're there in Leviticus. Go to the book of Deuteronomy. you got Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You say, what is it that God's trying to show us in regards to a continual or a continuation. And look, that's the word that you want to define your Christian life. Continue. That you continue. That you finish. That you kept going. That you didn't burn out. And, and he equates it not just to the oil, but then he talks about the bread. Deuteronomy 8. Look at verse 3. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Look at verse 3. He says this, And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna. He's talking about the fact that he fed the children of Israel through the wilderness with manna, which was bread, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. The Bible tells us that Jesus, that God, fed them with manna every day because he wanted them to learn. It was... A, it was a lesson in, in picture there. He wanted them to learn. It wasn't just to feed them bread. But he wanted them to learn that man does not live by bread only. In the New Testament, Jesus would say, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And if you remember the story, go, go, to, go, go to John, John chapter 6. If you remember the story of the children of Israel going and picking out manna, remember they had to go out every morning. And they had to pick out the manna for that day. And they weren't allowed to pick out more manna. They weren't allowed to go out and get two days worth. If they got two days worth, then it would stink the next day. It would bread worms the next day. Every day, they had to go out and get enough bread for that day. Of course, except for the Sabbath day. And God said, that is a picture of the fact that man shall not live by bread alone. But then he talks about his word, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. Why? Because look, God expects you to go out every day and to feed yourself from the word of God. Every day you must go out and look. You can't be one of these Christians who says, well, I'm just going to sit down today and I'm going to read like 50 chapters and that'll cover me for, all, for the whole week. No, it doesn't work like that. He said, I want you to go out every day. And to get the bread and the sustenance that you need for that day. And he said that the reason I fed you with bread was to show you that man does not live by bread alone. 
but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Are you there in John 6.35? Is it no wonder that Jesus said this? John 6.35, notice what he says. John 6.35, if you kept your place in Matthew, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And continue to keep your place in Matthew, by the way. John 6.35, and Jesus said unto them, notice what Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Jesus said, I am the bread. Now you say, in Deuteronomy 8, we're told that he fed them with bread, that they would know that they do not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. What's interesting is that Jesus said in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. But in John 1.1, let's go there just real quickly, just a few chapters before. John 1.1, the Bible says this about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we're told that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. John 1.14, notice what it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In that, uh, uh, the, the passage on the Trinity, it says there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Bread. The bread represents the word. That man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You say, what is it that God's trying to tell us? God's trying to tell you this, that every day you need to make it a priority to open up this bread and feed yourself. See, we, we pray for our daily physical bread, but you need to go out and feed yourself every day. And here's the connection. Because remember he said you need the oil in the candle to continue and you need the bread to continue. You say, what's the connection? You cannot be filled with the Spirit until you are in this book. You will not be filled with the Spirit. Look, if you're the type of Christian, I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but if you haven't read the Bible all week, there's no way you're filled with the Spirit. Because the Spirit works through the Word. We read it, and the, the anointing will teach you. It'll, it'll help you, and it'll guide you in all truth. You say, how do I get filled with the Spirit? You get filled with the Spirit when you read and meditate these words, and you have to go out every day and do it. Amen. And look, I'm here to tell you, if you do not develop the discipline of daily Bible reading in your life, you will not make it in the Christian life. Amen. You will be gone in three years. Or maybe just out of strength, you might last seven years. But if you do not learn to feed yourself every day spiritually in the same way that you feed yourself physically, you will not make it in the Christian life. And you will not be filled with the Spirit of, and by, uh, with the Spirit of God. And by the way, that's why you feel burnt out. That's why you're tired. Now, I'm talking about spiritually. That's why you want to quit. Because look, if you go a long time without eating physically, you know what happens to you? You get tired. You get weak. And you know what happens to you spiritually? When you go a long time without eating spiritually, you get tired, you get weak, you don't continue, you burn out. So he gives us this illustration of how to continue in the Christian life, how to keep going in the Christian life. You, see, you need the Holy Spirit. You need the filling of the Spirit. But that's connected to the Word of God and the feeding and the bread of yourself, feeding of yourself uh, in the Word of God. Go, go back to Leviticus 24. So in the first part of this chapter, we see this kind of uh, idea or illustration of how to continue in the Christian life. The Bible talks about being filled. It's interesting because in, in Ephesians, he says, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Ghost. And he talks about singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But in Colossians, he says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So there's a connection there with singing the, the psalms and singing the hymns and singing to God, but also having the words of Christ dwell in you, you know, and making sure that you are reading the Bible and that you are memorizing the Bible and that you have the word in your heart. Go back to Leviticus 24. In verse 10, he kind of shifts gears and he begins to talk about something different. He begins to talk about the balanced biblical justice or how biblical justice is, is a balanced justice that God gives us. Leviticus 24, look at verse 10. And the son of an Israelitish woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel. And this son of the Israelitish woman and a man of Israel strove together in the camp. And the Israelitish woman's son blasphemed, notice the emphasis, the name of the Lord. He blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed, and they brought him unto Moses. And his mother's name was Shalomith, the daughter of Debri of the tribe of Dan. Now you say, well, what's the big deal about blaspheming the name of the Lord? Well, you're there in Leviticus. Go, go one book back to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. And blaspheming, and what I'm about to show you is not exactly the same thing, but it kind of just shows you a principle in Scripture. Exodus chapter 20. Of course, Exodus 20 is where we find the Ten Commandments. The famous Ten Commandments. Well, one of the Ten Commandments says this, Exodus 20 and verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Now, what does the word vain mean? Vain means to be empty, without purpose, without reason. And he, that, Remember Solomon said, all, vanity of vanities, all is vanity under the sun. He talked about how if you just pursue, you know, the things of this world, they're empty. There's no purpose. There's no reason. That's what vanity, that's what it means to be vain. And the Bible says, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Here's what he means by that. You shouldn't use the name of God without a reason, without a purpose. When, when the word God or Jesus or Lord comes out of your mouth, it should be for a reason. It should be because you're either talking to God, you're talking about God, but it shouldn't just come out for no reason. And look, today, uh, Christians, even Christians have a big problem with this. Go, go back to Matthew. Did you keep your place in Matthew? Go to Matthew chapter 6. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ when he was teaching his disciples to pray? Notice what he said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. Matthew chapter number 6 and verse 9. Matthew 6, 9 says this, After this manner, therefore, Pray ye. Notice what Jesus he said. He said, you should pray by this manner. You should pray in this way. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Notice what he said. Our Father, which art in heaven. Notice what he said. Hallowed be thy name. The word hallow, it's the same word as sanctified or holy. He's saying, your name should be, what does it mean to be holy or sanctified? It means to be set apart. He said, hallowed be thy name. He said, your name should be hallowed. It should be set apart. It should be used in a sanctified and in a clean way. He said, hallowed be thy name. You know, it's a sin for you to just say, oh my God, just because you're excited about something or just because you're surprised by something. It's a sin to say the name of our Lord Jesus Christ as a curse word. To just say it because you're angry. Or just say it because you're upset. But you know what? Christians even have developed their own, you know, Christian cursing. And their own Christian, you know, take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Because, you know, what Christians will do is they won't say, oh my God. 
Because they know Exodus 20 says that you shouldn't take the name of the Lord that God made. So they'll say, oh my gosh. You know, and look, the word gosh is just, look it up in the dictionary. It's a euphemism for the word God. What's a euphemism? A substitution of an expression for one thought that is thought to be less offensive or harsh or blunt. Look, you, they, they don't want to say, you know, the name Jesus Christ. So they'll say, oh, geez. And it's just a euphemism. Look, you had Or they'll say, oh, my Lord. Lord is the name of God. And, and we need to be careful about the words that come out of our mouths and the things that we're doing. And look, we're going to be judged for every word that comes out of your mouth. God is going to hold you to task. And look, don't, don't be this person who's just flippantly using the name of God or even just using euphemisms uh, to substitute it. Jesus said, hallowed be thy name. We should treat it with respect. And this young man here had blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And he was, uh, he's going to get judged for it. Uh, go, go, go back to, go back to actually go to, go to Genesis chapter 9 before we get to Leviticus 24. Because what's going to happen is they're actually going to place this, they're going to put this young man to death. And, uh, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about capital punishment. Because you need to understand something about capital punishment. It is God who instituted capital punishment or the death penalty. In Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 is the first mention of the death penalty. Genesis 9 verse 6. Notice what the Bible says. This is God speaking. He says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood. I want you to notice the next two words. These are the key words in this verse. By man. By man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood. By man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. See, God gave mankind the responsibility of carrying out the death penalty. And of course, as you get further into Scripture, it becomes extremely clear that it is a responsibility that God gave to the institution of government. God has several institutions. He instituted the church, He instituted the family, and He instituted government. It is government who gave this responsibility of carrying out judgment. But I want you to know, it is ordained by God. It is God who said that the death penalty should be carried out, and it should be by man. Because today you'll have people that will say, oh, well, we're not supposed to put people to death because the Ten Commandments say, thou shalt not kill. Okay, but here's the thing. If God said, thou shalt not kill, and then he says here, whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, then that would be a contradiction in Scripture. And what people don't understand is that when Jesus said, thou shalt not, when, when the Old Testament says, thou shalt not kill, Jesus quoted that commandment in the New Testament. And look, whenever you find the New Testament quoting the Old Testament, and it's a little different, it's not because it's a mistake in Scripture. It's because the Bible serves as its own dictionary, and God is defining the word for us, or He's helping us to understand it. So in the Old Testament, He said, Thou shalt not kill. And in the New Testament, Jesus said, Thou shalt not commit murder. Why? Why does He say that? Because that's what He meant when He said, Thou shalt not kill. Right. Meaning that you and I are not supposed to commit murder or go kill somebody out of anger or revenge or whatever. But when government sheds man's blood you know, or put someone to death, that's not murder. That's not killing. Same with going to war. When you go to war for a, for a right cause, that's not murder. You know, throughout the Bible, if you kill someone who's breaking into your house, God said, 
that's not murder. You're not in trouble for that. If they break into your house at night and you kill them, God says that's fine. You know, our government, I don't know that they would say that, but that's what God says. So go, go to Leviticus 24. Look at verse 12. So when we're talking about capital punishment or the death penalty, you need to understand that it is God. It is God Almighty God who instituted the death penalty. And in Leviticus 24, and we've actually already seen the death penalty in Leviticus 20. We've seen it for all sorts of different things in Scripture. Usually when we think of the death penalty, we think of the death penalty only for murder. But in the Bible, God plays the death penalty on lots of things, like being a sodomite, uh, like being a rapist, like being a kidnapper, like being a witch, like uh, adultery. I mean, there's lots of things that God put the death penalty on, and one of them is blaspheming the name of the Lord, or, you know, t- uh, what this young man did. Leviticus 24, look at verse 12. I want you to notice the characteristics of the death penalty in Scripture. Leviticus 24, verse 12. Leviticus chapter 24, and verse 12, the Bible says, and they put him in ward. Now, in the Bible, you don't find prisons. You don't, have, you don't ever see God telling someone, put someone in prison for the rest of their lives. Okay, all the punishments in the Bible were carried out swiftly, and they were done. You know, they either had to pay back a certain amount if they were caught stealing, or there might be a physical punishment where they were actually beat for certain things, or they were just put to death. You never find them just putting people in prison, uh, you know, for the rest of your life. It's, you know, I think it's inhumane. To just lock somebody up. I mean, if I, you know, if I robbed or if I did something wrong and they said, hey, you can get locked up for like 20 years or we can just beat you with a rod. You know, we're just going to take a rod and we're just going to hit your back, you know, 20 times. What would you rather do? I'd take the beating, you know, because you don't find prisons in the Bible. But you do find this ward where they're just holding them there temporarily while they figure out, you know, what it is that they should do with them. So I want you to understand, here's a characteristic of the death penalty as carried out in Scripture. The accused was given a fair trial. Notice Leviticus 24, 12. And they put him in ward that the mind of the Lord might be showed them. And of course, in this trial, it was God who was the judge. So you're not going to get a more fair trial than that. In fact, it might be a little too fair. You know what I mean? You might just want a corrupt judge to help you out. But they put him in ward. But I want you to notice, they didn't just decide to just put him to death there. They took time, they put him in ward, and they figured out what should we do. So I want you to notice the characteristics of the death penalty is that they uh, be given a fair trial. And you know, that's something that's good, that it should be done. Justice should not be carried out by angry mobs. Justice should not be carried out by people that are just mad and upset and rioting and lynching. You know, here you see that the, what they did was they had people come in. They made sure it was done right. So the first thing we see is that there was a fair trial where God himself stood at the, as the judge. Notice the second characteristic of the death penalty here. Leviticus 24, verse, verse 13. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Bring forth him that hath cursed without the camp, and let all that hurt him lay their hands upon his head and let all the congregation stone him. I want you to notice, secondly, that not only was there t- uh, time given for there to be a fair trial, but there were also witnesses that were required in order to put him to death. In the Bible, we are told that you're not to put anyone to death based on the witness of one person. 
You needed to have multiple witnesses. And here, God is saying that the witnesses were supposed to come forth and actually say, this is what we heard and this is what we saw. Let me show you this in a different passage. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 13. You're there in Leviticus. You got Numbers and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 13. And look at verse number 6. Deuteronomy 13. And look at verse 6. Here's another reason why you were put to death in the Old Testament under the Mosaic law. Deuteronomy 13 and verse 6 says this, If thy brother, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or thy wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thine own soul, entice thee secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers, namely of the gods of the people which are round about you, uh, nigh unto thee, or uh, far off from thee, uh, from the one end of the earth, even unto the other end of the earth, thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him, neither shall thine eye pity him, neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him, notice verse 9, but thou shalt surely kill him. Thine hand shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So I want you to notice that in the Bible, it was the witnesses that were supposed to come, and they were supposed to not pity, they were supposed to not spare, they were supposed to not conceal, and it was their hand that shall be first put upon him to death. And you know, I've often thought about this, because in the Bible, we are told that people are supposed to be put to death, right, for, you know, being sodomites, for being these filthy animals, or for being, you know, child molesters, or rapists, or kidnappers, or whatever, and, and, and here's the thing, it makes sense that the witnesses, the ones that were trying to be sinned against, you know, he's trying to pull them away to get them to go and, and worship with the guards. Maybe the ones, maybe the, the father of the child that was molested, you know, he gets to be the first one to put his hands on this filthy animal and throw the first stone. You know, and that's judgment that God gives where he says, hey, the witnesses were required to put him to death. The witnesses were required. Because look, it's one thing for you to lie about someone, right? And say, oh, I saw them do this. It's another thing for you to lie and then sit there and take a stone and actually stone it. You know, the idea was that these people were angry because they were the witnesses. They were the ones that had been sinned against. They were the ones that had been done wrong. So you see that there was a fair trial that was given. And you see that there were witnesses that were required uh, to be put to death. Go back, uh, keep your place there in Deuteronomy 13. We're going to come right back to it, all right? But go back to Leviticus 24. I want you to notice another characteristic. The execution was public. It was a public execution. And look, today in America, I don't know that we really execute anybody. I mean, it's very rare. I think there are some states that, you know, once in a blue moon might execute somebody in an extreme case, but I don't think that, I think executions of our thing of the past. Leviticus 24, verse 14, notice what it says. Bring forth him that hath cursed without the camp, and let all that, had, that hurt him lay their hands upon his head. Notice what it says at the end of verse 14. And let all the congregation stone him. Meaning it was supposed to be public that the entire congregation would see it. Look at verse 15. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curseth this uh, God shall bear his sin. And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. And notice, 
all the congregation shall certainly stone him as well the stranger as he that is born in the land when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord shall be put to death. I want you to notice the execution was to be a public execution in front of the, all the congregation. They were all supposed to see it. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Now you say, well, what is the reason for that? Why couldn't it be just be this private thing? Why did everybody have to, have to see it? Well, the main reason for that is found in Deuteronomy 13. The reason that God wanted public executions, that he wanted these people to be put to death where the entire congregation would see it. Deuteronomy 13 and verse 10 says this, And thou shalt stone him with stones that he die, because he hath sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Notice verse 11, And all Israel shall hear and fear and shall do no more any such wickedness as this is among you. See, people say today, capital punishment doesn't work. When you put people to death, it doesn't work. But listen to me. Number one, it does work because when you execute some child molester, guess what? They're never going to hurt another child at least. Amen. You know, so that they're never going to hurt anybody. But here's the thing. Capital punishment doesn't work when it's done privately, you know, 35 years later. When they, when they rape some child in the 70s, you know, and in 2015 they're being put to death. Yeah, maybe that doesn't work, but if you would take them out publicly and stone them with stones, guess what would happen? It would deter other people from wanting to murder or wanting to rape or wanting to kidnap or wanting to do those things if it was a public thing. And you say, well, I don't, I don't like that and I'm not for that, but listen to me, you're not smarter than God is. You're not wiser than God is. God understands how to have a righteous nation. And he said, hey, when there is somebody that crosses the line, when they kill somebody or they hurt somebody where they deserve the death penalty, God says you should give them a fair trial. God says you should have witnesses that bring them. Uh, but then he says, look, you need to do it publicly. Amen. You need to take care of these people in a way where everybody can see it. Why? Because People will hear it and fear and shall do no more any such wickedness. It'll deter people from them. Let me give you one more characteristic. Go to Leviticus 24 and verse 23. I kind of, I kind of hinted towards it already, but look at Leviticus 24, 23. We're going to skip down to verse 23 and then come back and hit some of the verses that we skipped between 16 and 23. But look at verse 23 real quickly. Notice, in Le when, when did the story happen with the, with, the, with the young man that blasphemed? It happened in what? Leviticus 24, right? Earlier in the chapter. Notice what happens at the end of the chapter. Verse 23. And Moses spake to the children of Israel that they bring forth him that had cursed out of the camp and stoned him with stones. And the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, I understand that the analogy I'm going to give here is a little silly. But I want you to notice he committed the crime in Leviticus 24, you know, halfway through the chapter. And at the end of the chapter, they've already had the court case, they've already had the witnesses, and they put him to death. You know, if the, if, if the equivalent was true of the American justice system, he would do the crime in the middle of the chapter in the book of Leviticus, and he wouldn't be put to death till like the book of Psalms or something. You know, because it just, after you got through all the appeals, after you got through all the court cases, after they sat on death row for 25 years, you know, but I just want you to understand that the execution was not only public, but the judgment was swift. They took the time needed to make sure that it was the right guy, and then once they figured that out, they just took care of it. It was done. Go to Ecclesiastes chapter number 8. 
Ecclesiastes chapter number 8. Ecclesiastes chapter number 8. If you open your Bible right in the center in the book of Psalms, you'll, right after Psalms you got Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 8. Let me read for you uh, a little bit while you turn there. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Former Attorney General Robert Shevins, who was the Attorney General between 1971 and 1979, said this, The nation averaged about 4,000 murders a year when executions were a monthly occurrence. Murder rates raised from 4,000 a year to 22,000 a year during the years when prosecutors were forced to rewrite their state's death penalty laws. So I want you to notice, when, death, when, when people in our country are being put to death on a monthly basis, the nation in the 70s averaged about 4,000 murders a year. But when they had to rewrite the laws to make it harder to actually put someone to death, it skyrocketed from 4,000 a year to 22,000 a year. The main year was 1963. He said this, 1963 was the first year in American history. Think about this. From 1776 or whenever you want to start counting American history to 1963. 1963 was the first year in American history when no criminal was executed at all. The first year in American history that no criminal was executed in the United States of America was 1963. It was also the year of our highest crime rate up to that time. And it was also the year when prayer and Bible reading were kicked out of the public schools. And here's what's interesting about that. I read that about 1963, that was the first year that no one was put to death, the worst crime year of American history up to that point. But then I just, I just Googled you know, crime rates in the United States, and Wikipedia came up, and I was int- it was interesting because I, di- I didn't Google anything about 1963. I just Googled about current crime rates today in the United States of America, and an article from Wikipedia said this, crime in the United States has been recorded since colonization. Crime rates have varied over time with a sharp rise after 1963. Now, they don't, Wikipedia doesn't tell you what happened in 1963. They just tell you, hey, 1963, crimes went up. It just happened to be another article that I was reading that said that 1963 was also the first year that no one was put to death in America. And look, I'm just here to tell you, people say, ah, oh, capital punishment doesn't work. It, it obviously did. When as soon as you told people, we're, not, we're basically out of business, we're not putting people to death anymore, you got murders going from 4,000 a year to 22,000 a year, and, 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 and the crime rates just from that year forward skyrocketed. It is because judgment has to be brought swiftly. It has to be done publicly. It needs to be done fairly. Are there in Ecclesiastes 8? Look at verse 11. This is an interesting verse about this. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11. Notice what the Bible says. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Isn't that an interesting verse? Where the Bible would tell you, hey, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Look, when someone is convicted of murder, they're caught red-handed, there's witnesses, there's proof, we know they should not be allowed to sit on death row for 20 years. 
for 30 years. The execution should be done swiftly, it should be done publicly, and it should be done fairly. There should be witnesses, there should be a trial, they should be able to take care of those things. Go back to Leviticus 24, look at verse number 17. We skipped verses 17 through uh, 20 or uh, 21, but look at Leviticus 24, 17. Let me show you just a couple more things about the justice system that God instituted uh, in his government, Leviticus 24, and we'll be done here. Leviticus 24, 17. I want you to notice, first of all, that the justice system was a balanced system. In Leviticus 24, 17, the Bible says this, And he that killeth any man shall surely be put to death. So you take someone's life, they take your life. Life for life. That's balance. That's judgment. That's justice. And by the way, when someone takes someone's life and their life is not taken from them, justice has not been served. When they sit there, you know, with a life sentence or seven life sentences because they killed seven people or whatever, that's not justice. According to the Bible, justice is when the balances are weighed. You took someone's life, then we take your life. It's life for life. And notice how consistent it is. Look at verse 18. And he that killeth a beast, talking about an animal, shall make it good. Beast for beast. You, you know, you run over someone's dog and kill it, you got to get him another dog. You, whatever, you know, you, you kill their cat, you got to give him another cat, whatever. Look at verse 19. And if a man cause a blemish in his neighbor, you injure someone, you know, physically. Notice what the Bible says. As he hath done, so shall it be done to him. It's blemish for blemish. Look at verse 20. Breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he hath caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done to him again. See, here's what he's saying. If you injure someone to where they lose an eye, guess what the justice system of the United States of God does? They take your eye. Now, look, can you get more balanced than that? Can you get more equal than that? Because how do you, you know, because today, you know what we do? Someone gets sued, and then they get money. But how do you really measure the worth of your eye? Or how do you really measure the worth of your tooth or your hand or whatever injury it might be? You know, but God did not want, because here's the tendency of human judgment is either to go way too less, like some pedophile that gets five years in prison and he gets out in three years because he, you know, for good behavior. Or you, you, they go way too far where they take, you know, where you got someone who's, you know, selling weed and they get put in prison for like 10 years or something and, you know, tortured in some cell or whatever, which is not what God wants people to do. So you say, well, well how do you do it? Well, God said, look, you just do exactly, you, you know, they take someone's tooth, you take their tooth. You take someone's eye, you, you take their eye. You give them a blemish, they get a blemish. You know, and, and look, don't you think if you lived in this society, you'd probably be a lot more careful? Don't you think if you lived in this society, you'd probably be a little less likely to go get drunk and get in some stupid drunk fight? Because right. if you accidentally injure somebody and you break their arm, guess what they're going to do to you? They're going to break your arm. Or you, or you, you know, hurt, you know, they, they lose an eye or they lose a tooth. That's the, see, the justice system in the Bible is a balanced system. Now, let me, let me just talk, give you a couple more things. I know, I know we got to finish up. But let me give you a couple more things. Go, go to the book of Matthew just real quickly, if you get your place there. Matthew chapter 5. Let me talk about something. Because in Matthew 5, you find Jesus saying several things about, you've heard that it had been said. You know, he talks about, and some of the things aren't in scripture. But one of them is, and it's this idea of an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. And um, people will often use this passage 
to say, see, Jesus was condemning the Old Testament law. But I want to just explain that to you real quickly. Matthew 5.38, Jesus said this in his famous Sermon on the Mount. He said, You have heard that it had been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And people say, see, he was condemning the Old Testament. But look, Jesus, we saw already in this passage, Jesus is the Word. Jesus is Leviticus. So how could he be condemning Leviticus? And I just want you to understand, what Jesus was teaching in this passage, he was saying, it's not your right. It's not your privilege to go make things right. See, it's not like, you took my eye, so I'm going to gouge your eye out. No, that was a task that was given to government. Because when government does it, they're supposed to put him in ward, get the witnesses, who have due process, make sure it's done properly, and have somebody else. So I just want you to understand, what Jesus was teaching here when he said, but I say unto you, he's talking about in your personal life. And look, in, in, and I preached about it in our People Skills series, in your personal life, you should not live your life in a way where I'm going to, you know, recompense. The Bible says, recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of men. And in my life and in your life, we shouldn't live our lives in that way where it's just, you know, well, you did this, or I'm going to do that. and you. It's not eye for eye personally, but as far as the government and justice is concerned, it is eye for an eye. And that's what Jesus was condemning, and that's what he was teaching. Go back to Leviticus 24. Let me just give you a couple more thoughts, and we'll, we'll be done. Leviticus 24, look at verse 18. Just want to give you one last thought, really. Uh, Leviticus 24, 18. Leviticus 24, 18. Notice what he says. Leviticus 24, 18. And he that killeth a beast shall make it good. Beast for beast. Look at verse 21. Leviticus 24, verse 21. And he that killeth a beast, he shall restore it. And he that killeth a man... He shall be put to death. I just want to show you that in the Bible, human life is more valuable than animal life. When someone kills a man, he shall be put to death. When someone kills a beast, he shall restore it. And today we live in a society that just worships animals. You know, and if you, if you, put, your, you, you put a dog in a, in a vehicle on a hot day, you, I mean, you're liable to be locked up. You know, and here's the thing, you can murder, you know, you can murder 3,000 unborn children every day and nobody bats an eye at it, but you put your dog in a vehicle and then you've got all these liberals, you know, wanting to call the cops on you. And I, and I just want, you know, people get upset because, oh, they're testing shampoo on little bunny rabbits while, you know, 3,000 children are being put to death every day because we live in this stupid society that actually values animals above dogs because, you know, we're being taught that we are animals. Uh, values animals uh, above human life because, you know, our children are being brainwashed with the stupidities of evolution, being taught they are animals and they're no different than an animal and there's no more value to them than an animal. But listen to me. God teaches that human life is more valuable than an animal and he that killeth a beast, you know, should just go around killing people's animals? No, he shall restore it. But he that killeth a man, he shall be put to death. Notice verse 22 and we'll, we'll be done. And ye shall have one manner of law as well for the stranger as for one of your own country, for I am the Lord your God. Everyone should be held to the same standard. Politicians should not be held to a different standard. You know, Hollywood stars should not be held to a different standard. Everyone should be held to the same standard. And Moses spake to the children of Israel that they should bring forth him that had cursed out of the camp and stoned him with stones. And the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Let me just say one last thing. Obviously, we don't believe... Like Jesus said, it is not our job to go out and execute judgment. 
That's what Jesus taught in Matthew 5, is it not? You have heard that it had been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you. You know, it's the government's job to do that. Right. It's not our job to do that. And look, I know I've, I get a, I've been attacked about that. Ah, you know, the government, whatever. That's what Jesus taught. We're not going to teach anything. You know, you're not more righteous and you're not more smart than Jesus. Amen. Okay, so look, ye have heard that it had been said that sodomites should be put to death. But you know what? That's not our job. If we lived in a righteous government that actually followed the laws of God, that's what they would do. And, and, and that's what they would take an eye for an eye, and they would take a tooth for a tooth, but it's not our place to do that. And if you go out and become some vigilante, you know you're not right with God. Because now all of a sudden you're smarter and you're wiser and you're better than Jesus. And that's just not the case. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for these chapters. Lord, it's amazing these, you know, how Leviticus is just mocked at today, but yet it's highly applicable in our society even now. And, Lord, we just thank you for allowing us to study the Bible, to learn the Bible. Pray that you'd bless uh, everyone that's here, Lord. And I pray that you just bless this weekend and all the things that are going on, the soul winning and the, the weekend services. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.